Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. The Exiles in Babylon conference is now available uh, through video. If you go to theologyinraw.com, you can get all the information there. If you want to learn more about race and racism, sexuality, gender, uh, politics, unity in the church, and or um, a theological debate on hell, then check out theologyandraw.com. Get access to all the videos from last year's Exiles in Babylon conference. We are doing another Exiles in Babylon conference next year. That's March 23rd to 25th in 2023 in Boise, Idaho. So save the date. There's going to be more information available on that very, very soon. My guest today is Scott Sauls. Uh, Scott's been on the show many times, like three, four times or something like that. Uh, Scott is a pastor. He's an author. He's a Christian leader, uh, especially in the PCA denomination, but really all across uh, the country. And he is just an absolute delight to talk to. His recent book that just came out is Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, How God Redeems Regret, hurt and fear in the making of better humans. And that is the topic that we are going to discuss uh, today. So please welcome back to the show for the umpteenth time, the one and only Scott Sauls. All right. Hey, friends, I'm back with Scott Sauls for uh, what number is this, Scott? Is this your... At least second, maybe third time being on the podcast? I think this might be the third, Preston. I, I'd have to go back and check, but it, it's been at least, this is at least the second, I, but I think it's yeah. the third. I think hmm. it's been almost a yearly thing, and I'm happy keeping it that way, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, are you hurting for material? Or are you having a hard time you know, well, getting you, your you, A-list to say yes? <laughs> you write so many books, and they are all so good. Like, do you not preach at your church? How do you have time <laughs> Yeah. Well, here's the, I mean, here's the wonderful thing about writing related to what I get to do. I, I never start with a blank slate, you know, yeah. um, the preaching I, I preach, you know, about 40 times a year at, or 40 Sundays a year at the church that I pastor in Nashville. And then, you know, probably do another, you know, 15 to 20, uh, in, you know, other places, conferences, guest speaking yeah. and things like that. It's a, it's a huge part of, my life and what I do, but what you what what happens is you develop this this archive of of your best most refined thought mm-hmm. on yeah. all kinds of subjects and and while writing a chapter in a book is very different process as you know mm-hmm. um, than it is delivering a speech or a sermon uh, there is a lot of um, benefit to having done a ton of research yeah. before you even start, uh, you know, sitting down to write. And so I don't know if I've ever written a single chapter without reference, referencing a backlog of work that I've already done in some capacity in the speaking space. So yeah, that is, so it's a great benefit. Uh, it's a, it, and, and honestly, writing doesn't take a lot of my time. Um, if I'm, if I'm writing a book, I, I'll, I'll take one day a month for 12 months. That's my writing period for oh. a book. And, and that's it. And, and, um, but having that backlog is, is huge to so that. one day. So one day a month, that, then that's a, that's just built into your schedule. That's, is that been like that for a while? Is that? Yeah. Since 2014, when I wrote Jesus outside the lines, which yeah. is my first, first book project. So I'm, I'm kind of on an every other year okay. pace and, um, you know, I'll write for 12 months and then, the next 12 months is, you know, as you know, Preston, uh, from your wonderful 
projects. Uh, there's the editing process and yeah. all the rest that goes into launching a book, which which feels like a writing sabbatical. So it's like right. one year sabbatical, one year writing, <laughs> one year sabbatical is, is kind of how it feels. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, so the book is people. Uh, beautiful people don't just happen. How God redeems regret, hurt, and fear in making better humans. First of all, what, how did this book come about? I imagine, like you said, it was probably a sermon series or somehow related to your pastoral work and then give us a snapshot of what it's all about. So, um, so it's, it, it, it's a product of the last two years, honestly, uh, Preston that we've been in. And, and yeah, I think that people were distressed before the pandemic, but I, I think the pandemic season heightened and amplified and, you know, added oxygen to, um, mm -hmm you know, regret, hurt, and fear, which are the three hmm. pain points that I think everybody on some level wrestles with, um, were, were sort of thrust to the center of so many people's lives and communities all over the world. And, um, you know, as a pastor, I, I have a front row seat to people's greatest joys and people's, you know, greatest dysfunctions and, 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 <laughs> and hardships and distresses. And, and so, uh, it, it just felt like a season where I thought, you know, I'd really like to have a resource mm -hmm. to be able to hand to people who are in distress over guilt and shame, uh, you know, feeling like I'll never be enough, uh, over, you know, any kind of hurt, whether it's hurt that we inflict on ourselves, uh, through dysfunctional patterns, uh, or codependency, or whether it's, hurt that we experience at the hands of somebody else or a group of people or hurt that we experience just by virtue of living in a fallen world in a fallen body and that sort of thing. And then, and then the big one, uh, is, is also fear, uh, of just how prone we are to meditate on and ruminate on imagined future worst case scenarios. And so I've just seen all three of those, um, realities at, at, I think what I would describe as a fever pitch. In, in so many different contexts um, and in so many different people's lives and homes and mm -hmm. workplaces and everything else, churches. And um, I felt like, you know what, I, I, I'm in so many conversations right now, um, including with a really great counselor who's giving me a lot of wisdom, <laughs> you know, during this season. Yeah. And so it really, it really was born as a book that I wanted to be able to hand to not only those who are you know, trying to navigate those three pain points I just talked about, but also people who are walking alongside them, mm -hmm. um, you know, pastors, mental health professionals, counselors, social workers, uh, you know, just good friends, empathetic friends who feel called to show up, uh, mm -hmm. for somebody, I don't know, you know, how it will play out. Um, but, but my hope is that it'll be a, a helpful resource, uh, like a, like a pastor in book form, mm -hmm. uh, for, for those three pain points that people can use in their relationships and communities and, you know, working yeah. through things personally. So I could um, have a lot of count, a lot of counselors and therapists getting behind the project, which is really, oh, okay. really meaningful uh, to me, which means that it hopefully hit, hit some of the things I wanted it to hit. Good. I, I can probably guess at least part of the reasons for, for regret, hurt and fear, but can you, yeah, unpack what, what are some of the common patterns you're seeing? What, why are people hurt? What's, what are they fearful of? I, again, with the pandemic, I could probably get and the economic imbalance, <laughs> all this stuff. Yeah. Like, um, 
fear of getting COVID and dying or losing a level. I mean, mm-hmm. but yeah, is it, what are some of the sources here that you're dealing yeah, with? Yeah, I mean, COVID just, I think, sent the whole world into a panic. Um, you know, truly unprecedented experience, at least for those of us in the West, right? It's not unprecedented for 70% yeah. of the world. Um, you know, 70% of the world is dealing with with disease and, and yeah. high mor- high mortality rates, you know, for yeah. all sorts of reasons, but but in the West, um, you know, it, it it was very new uh, to to most of us to to realize how not only out of control I am, but how out of control we are, uh, you know, as a human race. And um, you know, it just sort of broke the illusion that we're in control of anything. And and I just think that that mm-hmm. sent. Um, a lot of people in my community, right, who are used to succeeding and used to winning and used yeah. to, you know, being able to pay a little money to make pain go away, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, or what have you. Uh, and, and that was all kind of stripped away um, yeah. for at least a while. And then and then what that led to was was all the political upheaval around, you know, pick your subject, um, yeah. you know, race. Gender and sexuality, which is yeah. which is your lane of expertise. Um, I wish more people would um, dive into your your work there. Um, <laughs> your checks in the mail. Uh, I mean, you you just you bring sanity. Um, you bring grace and truth uh, and, and sanity to the the conversation. That you know, when it when it's taken hostage by the political yeah. climate, it it just it goes nowhere except to you know, more hostile places like any subject, but, um, you know, even things like mask wearing, um, uh, I was going to say, yeah, you, you hit the big ones, but I'm like wearing a mask got politicized. Yeah, man. <laughs> like everything, everything like yeah. love your neighbor as yourself now has become in some people's mind, a, a trigger, uh, where, Oh, well that means you must be a critical race theorist because you said, <laughs> love your neighbor. I'm like, no, I, it's actually cause I'm a Christian, <laughs> you know? And, and, yeah. and I don't, I don't even, I don't even know even 10% of what critical race theory is, you know, and, and all I know is that, that God calls me to love my neighbor as myself. And if I'm not loving him, if I'm not loving my neighbor, then I'm not really loving God. And yeah. I really want to be one of those who is seen as loving God, especially by God himself. Yeah. And so, and so, yeah, it's, it's crazy, man. Like in church world, I don't know what it's like in your conversations, Preston, at, you know, conferences that you do and, the stuff that you write and put out there. But in church world, the way to grow a church really fast right now is to become as partisan as you can. Yeah. Uh, and the way to shrink your church is, is to be somewhere in what I would call the faithful middle, you know, where you're, you're affirming the good on the right and the left, and you're critiquing what's not so good on the right and the left. That, that's a great way to lose church members these days yeah. Yeah. to hyper-partisan churches whose politics have in many ways become their religion. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so it's a, it's kind of a crazy environment, but I, I think that's, that's amplified, you know, back to the question that's amplified regret, you know, uh, guilt, shame, you know, guilt, something I did, shame. It's who I am because of what I did. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the hurt and fear aspects. And I think there's a lot of anxiety right now because like the last couple of years we thought, okay, as soon as we can get out of, if we could just get out of this pandemic, everything will go back to normal, but it ha- we haven't gone back to normal. Hmm. Um, and 
people just hate each other a lot more yeah. <laughs> now yeah. and are, are more deeply entrenched in echo chambers now than, than ever before. Um, so man, um, hoping that you can give us the answer on the way out. Of all <laughs> well, this. here's, I mean, I, and I, I agree with everything you're saying. Um, but just the other day I kind of reflected on, this might be a long, a long way. I got to take me a few seconds to unpack my question, but like, We've we've been through a lot the last couple of years, um, mm-hmm. but this is pandemics and riots and um, economic insecurity. That's more more normal than not. And I wonder. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're roughly the same age. You're you're thirty two as well, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm but going I, like, on the you know, I think back like anniversary of my thirty two year old. Like birthday. from the eighties, <laughs> from the eighties till now mm-hmm. or till 2015 or whatever like um pretty uniquely padded existence you had the economic flourishing of the 80s largely you had mm-hmm. and there's some wars you know but nothing like the vietnam war world war ii you know right. this, the, but the 70s had a lot of ep- economic upheaval people like you know, like gas shortages and major inflation. Then the sixties were the sixties and the, in the yeah. heart of the cold war, like maybe tomorrow we'll be nuked and we don't even know you had the big right. eggs and then world war two. And you had a window of the fifties, I guess that for white straight men, you know, were pretty great. Um, uh, but then before that you had Hitler, that wasn't that long ago. And then the 20, the flu, yeah. the, 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 the with the flu of 20 or 1919 or whatever 1918 that killed like 25 million or 50 million people what the what we're in now is isn't that abnormal it's more normal than not we just we just kind of were raised in a really kind of padded small window of of time so my question mm-hmm. is why now cuz in the past i don't think we had the same skyrocketing suicide anxiety depression um, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, that stuff's always has been there, but these skyrocketing rates now, why, why were they not always there? Were we just a more resilient people back then? Is, does the internet have something to do with it? Like, does that make sense? Am I even right? Like, is maybe I'm inaccurate. Maybe it's an inaccurate observation. So I guess I need to know from you if, if, if I'm even ma- making an accurate observation. Um, well, I can, you know, I'm, I'm no social, I'm not a sociologist and I'm not a, um, I'm not a therapist. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm kind of an armchair quarterback on yeah. such, such, you know, big, you know, important questions, but anecdotally, um, it, it's, it, it's absolutely true. Like, yeah, I know our church is getting a lot more, you know, requests for, assistance with mental health mm-hmm. challenges, um, e- you know, either from pastoral staff or, you know, from the benevolence folks who, you know, help people financially with things like counseling and therapy and things. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, at a, it's, it's, it's higher than it's ever been in my 26 years of pastoral yeah. ministry. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. And, um, and that's also true of pastors. Um, you know, Barna, Barna has just come out with their most recent data indicating that I think that I think it's like 40 percent or maybe just a little bit below, like 38, 39 percent of, of pastors are looking to leave the ministry entirely right now, wow. um, which is a lot of people. Lot. Uh, it's a lot of 
lot of faithful people just feeling like, ah, just don't know if I got it in me to, mm-hmm. to keep doing this because, you know, it, it, it's just, you know, the climate is, is, um, it's just something else, man. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a climate like, like never before in my opinion. So yeah. What, so why, why, why now? And not for every other generation that went through, I mean, arguably more stressful world events and, and, and things yeah. going on. Um, it has, I mean, I, I know we blame everything on the internet, but I think the, ex- it's the internet's fault. But I just wonder if maybe more than ever, we are, if you go on social media, like you go on Twitter and just scan Twitter, like that, that, cr- mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes you think that the world's about to end, you know, and that everybody yeah. is, um, just outraged and everybody's being killed and, and there's so much horrific things happening, but, and, and there are definitely challenging things happening, Mm-hmm. But there always has been. It's just now. Is it? And this, I guess, yeah. is a question. Like now, it's just in our face all the time. For for those of us who are on social media, which I I read yeah. something the other day, Scott, that you know, twenty percent of American citizens have a Twitter account. Most of them don't hardly use it, and they said something like, ten, I think, don't quote me on this, but like something like ten percent of Twitter users are responsible for like ninety percent of the tweets. So that's like five mm-hmm. percent of the population. Like if you go on Twitter. Mm. Seems like this is the world. It's five percent of well, people yeah. who are mentally wired to be angry on a social media platform, which is a unique kind of person. Yeah. Even that five percent is like a kind of strange five percent. If I can yeah, it feels like a lot more than it is. You're saying <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's Dave yeah. Chappelle said it's not the real world, and it really isn't. Like it's, wait, Twitter's not the real world. <laughs> um, yeah, man. I I I wonder, Preston, if you know, you, you, you know, you're, you're, I think rightly drawing a contrast between the way things used to be and, you know, what maybe the resilience of people in the past, uh, that's just so much greater than what feels like, you know, a lack of resilience in the present. Uh, yeah. I wonder if it's because, you know, we lost something that, that, that maybe those prior generations never had, um, you know, an illusion of control, Okay. Yeah. Disproportionate amounts of comfort and, um, you know, cushion mm-hmm. uh, in our lives that 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 suddenly were lost. Uh, I don't know the 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 political climate. I don't know I, the the political climate. It's it's been interesting. Like this, just the last decade. But I think that I think that Jonathan Haidt uh, or Haidt or however you say his last yeah. name yeah. has done a really good job nailing down how and he's re- he's come out. With 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 several just really great pieces in the Atlantic. Yeah, uh, that, that was that, a that, great article. Oh my word! Yeah. He's he's writing a book out of that. Um, he is. That's kind of. I think that's kind of what he does. He writes. Yeah. You know this epic Atlantic article that goes viral, and then he writes a book on it. Yeah. Um, but but wouldn't it be wonderful if it were it were that smooth for for the I rest got, of us? But but <laughs> I gotta get the real quick. I gotta get the title. It's it's what what why the last ten years have been more stupid or something like that. Uniquely or? stupid or something like that. But but. But, you know, the work that he did before that really was just about how there's been this shift to a, a, a culture that used to value tenacity and grit mm-hmm. uh, has shifted to a, a culture that values emotional safety, which is, you know, and, and, and he's, he's, he's 
I think identified that, you know, safety used to mean physical safety, safety from, you know, from people breaking into your house, safety from domestic abuse, safety from, you know, sexual assault on college campuses, et cetera, like physical safety was what safety used to mean. Now safety, according to Jonathan Haidt, or Haidt, I'm probably butchering his name, H-A-I-D-T. I don't uh, like say height. Somebody said it's hate and they talked to him about it, but then I've heard him. I'm pretty sure I've heard him say height. I don't know. It's height. Okay. So we'll go with height then. Um, <laughs> we'll go with what he calls himself. And, um, and so, so now, now he says that the prevailing uh, thought is that, that safety includes uh, protection from ideas that make you feel uncomfortable. Yes, yes. Um, yes. This is the coddling, the coddling of the American coddling mind. of the American mind. Most important and, book in the last ten years of my or I one mean, of the top. Um, yeah, I mean, it is sort of the 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 whole concept of safe spaces on college campuses. Right, Heights' theory is that's just the best way to turn an education into a non-education uh, is to tell students that if, if they are made to feel uncomfortable by any ideas that they're exposed to, they can protest and get a speaker uninvited from yes, campus. Yes, yes. They can protest and get a tenured professor fired uh, or, or make it so miserable for that professor that they, they yeah. feel like they have no recourse but to quit. Yeah. Uh, and it all traces back to the idea that, that a group of students got their feelings hurt by ideas that they didn't agree with. Yeah. Um, now for me, and I know for you, I mean, we're, we're both kind of third way, uh, type people. Um, I've, I mean, I'm an Enneagram four, but I've got a little bit of Enneagram eight in me. Um, <laughs> you know, the challenger, which actually yeah. means that, 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 that robust debate and disagreement is actually a form of intimacy for me. And so, <laughs> so I, I'm, I just, I scratch my head at, at the notion of, you know, safety being, um, you dare not say anything that makes me uncomfortable lest it render you an unsafe person. Yeah. And, you know, there's this interview that, uh, that I saw a few years ago, uh, it was at the university of Chicago uh, you know, which is at the place that, that you would expect of all places, they, they would they would just want to champion the notion of, yeah. you know, this this whole new way of thinking. Yeah. And David, David Axelrod, who was part of the Obama uh, administration, and then Van Jones, who's one of the more liberal, uh, progressive political commentators, um, you know, brilliant African-American thinker, uh, but leans really hard left. And you're, you're and, and Axelrod at the University of Chicago in a public forum asks um, Van Jones, what do you think about safe spaces? And you're expecting, you know, both these guys coming from the progressive mm-hmm. mindset at a very progressive institution in a very progressive city to say, oh, safe spaces, man, it's the way to go. We're progressing. <laughs> we're we're more enlightened, um, you know, down with the, you know, down with the people with the, the ideas that that that, you know, make us, you know, bristle. Yeah. And, and Van Jones is like, it's the worst idea ever. Um, you know, safe spaces are yeah. the worst idea ever. And it, it's a, it's a killer of education. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the idea that, you know, the university of all places is a place where, where students should feel safe. 
Uh, and he says, of course, I want you to be safe and feel safe physically from violence, from harm, from assault, et cetera. But I do not want you to feel emotionally safe. Yeah. I want your ideas to be challenged and I want you to develop the emotional resilience to be able to take it yeah. and to be able to self-critique and also to be able to to challenge back and argue for your ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, he says, you know, what's the point of a gymnasium if I have to take if, if we take the weights uh, out of the out of the gym? Um, right. And, and, and so I'm like, wow, man, like like didn't expect that from from this conversation, but, but, um, was really onto something. And I, I think that, that it's the whole safe spaces concept that has given birth to what now the sociologists are calling expressive individualism, yeah. right? Because it, it used to be that, that, that the source of truth, the ultimate source of truth was, was an objective reality higher than all of us, uh, you know, coming in from outside of us, telling us what the truth is. And our job was to adjust mm -hmm. our inner life to what the truth is and to what the, what the truth says, and then to live accordingly. Now it's not truth anymore. It's my truth. Right. And it's your truth. I mean, how often do we hear speak your truth? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'll speak my truth. Well, what we what we have in that arrangement is is a bunch of uh, you know millions and millions of people whose truths are colliding with each other all the time and contradicting each other all the time and and so you know that's my armchair theory as yeah. to why there's so much political upheaval and why it's easy to grow a partisan church and and hard yeah. to grow a reasonable one um, you know and or you know it, you know think about what if they did an experiment and came up with a cable news channel that that was a third way uh, approach that that affirmed uh, <laughs> the good on the left and the right and critiqued yeah. the good on the left and the right? What what do you think would happen? <laughs> right? I mean, probably a lot of people would watch it, but you'd also get a lot of yeah. middle fingers, um, you yeah. know, uh, from from the far right and far left. You know, Do you think there's a there's a silent majority that's actually hungering for more nuance? Or I I, I am I, I feel like I am jaded because most of the people I listen to and learn from mm -hmm. are heterodox thinkers, um, yeah. are left of center, right of center, or not even part of the paradigm. They don't even consider yeah. themselves left or right. Um, Me too, Preston. But I feel like is that a and I feel like. They're so reasonable and sane. There's a, um, a medical doctor that I listen to when it comes to um, a medical doctor. Is that even a phrase? What other kind of doctor it is, is it? Is a, it is. A oh, phrase. yeah. That's true. I'm <laughs> yes. a non-medical doctor. But he's uh, – um, uh, his name's uh, Zubin Demania. Demania? Um, okay. Hilarious Gen Xer. Very uh -huh. talented but really brilliant guy. Uh -huh. And he, he's coined the term uh, alt-middle. <laughs> alt yeah, okay. but it really in any episode, he will – of any person I've listened to, like honestly follow the, the data, the evidence. He's very well researched on whatever it is, mass, vaccines, whatever. Um, and he it just – at any moment, he could say something that sounds more right, sounds more left, sounds yeah. like a yeah. weird combination of both, and he just doesn't. He's just a really honest thing. So all all that to say, I don't know why I even brought him up, but um, he he's a it's a brilliant um, podcast, yeah. really interesting. But I, that that's the world that I glean from. So it's right. It feels like my confirmation bias is the majority of people are way more reasonable and nuanced, and you have these really fringe people out here. But maybe it's 
the opposite. I don't know. I don't. I it's don't hard know, to... man. I mean, it, it's possible that that we too, uh, Preston, are in an echo chamber ourselves, yeah. right? Yeah. Um. So, like, there was this gathering um, that that I was part of uh, on the East Coast, I guess, last year, and it was it was put together by. If there ever is another one, you need to be at it. But um, it was a smaller gathering of about 20 people from around the country, you know, all Christian leaders in different spheres. And I think I was like one of two or three pastors. Okay. Um, but it was mostly like journalists and, and, and um, you know, kind of cultural mm-hmm. influencers and that sort of thing. So I, I don't really know why I was there. But, but <laughs> nonetheless, you know, it was a, it was a small gathering of people who were just like, are we crazy? Um, <laughs> you know, are, are we missing something? And, and it, it ended up kind of being this, okay. Uh, so kind of like this Elijah moment, uh, you know, not to dramatize it, but remember Elijah's like, Lord, I'm the only one, yeah. uh, you know, everybody yeah. else is bowed the need to bail except <laughs> me. And the Lord's like, no, there's actually hundreds of others that haven't. You, you just, you know, you just need to trust me on this. And so it was kind of one of those moments, but, but I, I walked away feeling like, yeah, like, like this is a minority group right now. And, and, and as I look around, like, like, here's, here's an example, like, you know, my, my mentor, um, and spirit animal, Tim Keller, right. He's suddenly become unpopular to liberals and conservatives. He's suddenly become unpopular. I don't uh, know and, why and that is, but I will finish your thought. But I, I career and and yeah. he's actually living more beautifully now than I, I think he ever has wow. in in the public space. But by, by virtue of the way that he's responding to to inoperable cancer and incurable yeah. cancer, like it's like the most beautiful, you know, li- beautifully lived season of his life, and he's getting filleted, um, you know, from from the right and the left um, for, for what. Very, what, what seem he, like very reasonable statements. Yeah. What 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 happened? Like I, now is not the time to be kind. Now is the time to be prophetic. To you know c- to confront the evil on the left, or as it the case may be, to confront the evil on the right. You know, take a stand, have some courage, grow some skin, thick skin, and so political and, neutrality is that what he's getting critiqued for? Well, or? that's what he's getting critiqued for. But the thing is, like like he's not any of those things. Like he's, he's always been so incredibly courageous. Like the guy preached against abortion in New York city. Hmm. Uh, he preached for complementarianism in New York city, (laughs) you know, like, like seriously. Um, but just think about the way that he got, um, you know, the Kuiper award rescinded, uh, at, at Princeton, right? Like, like Princeton had awarded him this, this Kuiper Award for cultural engagement and 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 faithfulness and impact, and then a bunch of students were like, "Well, he doesn't believe that women should be pastors." Okay, right? And so that's debatable. Um, different people have a different understanding of Scripture on that. But Tim, like everything else, arrived at his conclusion based on his best, you know, right. effort at trying to understand Scripture on these things, right? Uh, and so they from the student, pre- because of the student pressure, they rescinded the award, but then they asked him to give the, the keynote speech <laughs> They did, <laughs> while somebody else received the award, oh which God. he graciously did, you know, in, in a scene, in a, in a situation where Abraham Kuyper himself on those criteria <laughs> would have been disqualified yeah. to win the award by his own name. Uh, like that's how hmm. crazy it's gotten. Um, you so know, he, where he hasn't changed the climate has changed. 
Oh, he's he's pretty. And Christine Kane would tell you the same thing. She said, "Look, I, I am the same person preaching the same message that I did 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. I have not changed, mm-hmm. but but the the climate has. And <laughs> and well, I, I I don't know if Tim would say that, uh, but you know, Tim's message. If you listen to his sermons from the from the mid 90s." Mm-hmm. They're the same kinds of yeah. sermons that, that he preached three years ago. And and yeah. so it, it really is a, I think it's a sociological study more than it is yeah. a study on, you know, a leader. Did, did you leader see that? that, um, that I, I'm not on Twitter a lot. Somehow I came across this um, Elon Musk. <laughs> he, he posted like this graph of left, middle, right, and where he was 10 years ago. No, where he was five years ago and where he is now, and he's he's exactly the same. Like he's he's held the same beliefs, uh-huh. but then like the center has kept moving to where now he was on the left oh, of center, okay. and now the center okay. keeps like the the and and he was he was critiquing how far left the left has gotten, and now all of a sudden people right. say he's a right winger, even though his views have like right. held the and same. He's the same it was, guy. It was exactly what you're taught. It was a great illustration. Yeah. I mean, it was hilarious. And in the nineties, so. it was the opposite where, where right. like the right had gone ballistic. Right. Um, it, it, it had gone so far right. And, and yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, people who were kind of in the, in the, that middle space w- yeah. were li- were deemed liberal in, yeah. in the same way that those very same people now are deemed too conservative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they haven't changed. Yeah, that's a yeah. really interesting observation, Preston. So, so Scott, I think the first time I had you on, or at least a, one of our earlier conversations we had, might, might have been offline or online. I'm not sure. You said one of your kind of hidden goals is to have a church that is like 50 percent Republican, 50 percent Democrat, or not political at all. Um, and I and it's and, and it, when you told me this a few years ago, you were like, "We're we're getting, you know, we're we're." You know, not fifty fifty, but we're we're representing that fairly well. Yeah, in, in light of everything we're you're saying, more like sixty forty. Um, so, but in the last couple of years, but, with all the yeah. divisiveness, has, has you have, yeah. have you been able to maintain that kind of, or has your church swung become more polarized? In, in no, the it's of, st- it's stayed about the same. I mean, you know, within our church, we we've you know we've had certain conflicts be- because of the fulfillment of our vision uh, okay. that we set out to fulfill <laughs> in the last 10 years. Um, right. Like we're here, you know, we have four congregations now, you know, one of them is very red state, you know, another one is very blue state and, and the other two, you know, one of them is about 60, 40 leaning red. The other is about 60, 40 leaning blue. Okay. So, so we're, you know, we're, we've seen, you know, a lot of, what we set out to, to do happen. Uh, but, but yes, during the last two years, probably more, you know, kind of more behind the scenes and not so much public, but, but behind the scenes tension, uh, which, which, which you hope will be redemptive, right? You have the Jew Gentile thing, uh, in the new Testament era where, you know, you've got these people from just radically different ways of seeing the world, you know, Greeks and Jews, suddenly being called together, you know, by Paul the Apostle, who was once, you know, the Jew of all Jews, um, mm-hmm. who has been called to be the ambassador of the gospel to the Gentiles. And 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 it becomes such a theme in his ministry of, of reconciliation, um, yeah. you know, that, that, you know, personal sanctification in our, you know, relationship with God based on reconciliation with God 
must lead to social sanctification or mm-hmm. social holiness where where we're, we're we find ourselves we find our friendships growing you know yeah. uh, with with people who you know have seen the world differently than us all these years and so so that's happening but it's it's Gosh, it, it it feels so romantic to talk about diversity. I, I I actually think that most people believe a lot more in the idea of diversity than they do in mm-hmm. diversity because diversity is very hard. It's a yeah. it's a grind to 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 try to create a climate that that serves the purpose of cultural diversity. And so you know I think once once people who set out with good intentions to to build a more diverse community get into it, I think sometimes people regret it because it it's it's goes slow and and it's got inherent tensions built in it but it's also a great opportunity for the gospel to be the power of god yeah. uh, on the ground in, in our lives the, the the political polarization that you kind of led with in the last couple of years is it getting better <laughs> like where are we at in that I mean, where does that lead or is it just like you because you made a Man. comment that like we thought that now the pandemic would be over and everything would be life would go yeah. back to normal but you're like it's gotten anything but normal I, I would say it's a little geographical um yeah like think. idaho where i live it's been very normal for a while i would say mm-hmm. um, th- there's you know we face you know supply chain stuff and um, yeah. just the other day i found out that my well get this scott uh, we live in the country they're just outside the city limits so we are, we're on a well and there's been a bunch of new housing projects in the area and apparently that's drained our what's it called aqua something mm. our water level okay so my well's about the it's drying up like where we are uh, we they had to lower the pump to the bottom which you're not supposed to do because they're like you only have like six inches left like you're you're yeah basically gonna run dry I'm like all right yeah. so i need to drill a new well which i'm not even gonna say say how much it costs but here's the kicker every drill company i call they're a year and a half to three years out oh wow i normally wow. say first world problems but i'm like um i might not have water for yeah. a year. There's people in our neighborhood wow. that haven't had water in for six months. They've been going to the laundromat, wow. showering. Uh-huh. Do you ever think that you might be living in America in a middle-class kind of neighborhood and not have water? <laughs> like That's crazy. Yeah. You know, my brother's in the food business and he's saying, watch out because, um, really? you know, supply chain stuff might be about to hit a, a whole lot of communities yeah. that don't expect it. Um, and we face a little yeah. bit of that during the pandemic with toilet paper, or whatever, but the, this is yeah. saying more and more things that you just can't. Yeah. Get. Which again, ultimately I'm mean, going back to your book, I guess like beautiful people are created when there's, when there's some kind of opportunity for resilience <laughs> mm-hmm. or anti-fragility as, as Height would say. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So is it what what is it getting better? Is it getting worse? What what what's your prediction in two years from now? What's the church going to look like? Are we going to be in these like hyper polarized churches across political lines, or do you think people are like, all right, let's let's go back to <laughs> the gospel and not be divided over whether masks are effective or not or whatever? Yeah, I, golly, time will time will tell. I guess I, I you know in in my in my own context, I. I I do, you know, I do have hope in that, that Mike and the Mechanics song, uh, it talks about how every generation blames the one before. <laughs> I do have hopes that, you know, Gen Z and the, the generation that comes after them will, will correct some of this. It, it always seems to happen that, that, you know, so many of, of culture shifts end up being along generational lines yeah. and generational values and, you know, how they're 
parent wounds inform their view of the world. Uh, you know, I think that's that's the case with with every generation. And so, so I'm hoping that you know, especially as younger leaders, you know, step into leadership, uh, that 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 a better way will be paved. And and um, you know, especially those who are Christian, I hope I hope end up being very much in the center of of those conversations. But in my own in my own world, I do detect uh, a weariness um, yeah. where where like people are rolling their eyes these days more than they are listening anymore um, uh, yeah. uh, at these conversations. And I don't know if that's like a cynicism that that is just dismissive and you know kind of like a quiet middle finger or or if it's resembling some level of, of health, um, yeah. of, of, yeah, this hasn't worked. Um, this isn't creating reconciliation and life and peace. It's just creating, you know, it's a, a negativity that just feeds itself and is contagious like a cancer. And I, I do think there are, I think there are more people that are growing weary of it. Time will tell whether or not the effect of that will be more solidified polarization uh, where people just go into their corners and just stop boxing against each other and just live in alternate universes altogether. Yeah. Uh, or maybe the good work of reconciliation will, will move forward. Um, and we'll yeah. see more diverse communities and, you know, better conversations. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you, if you stare at the news or you stare at political discourse, you get the, I think you do get the impression that, Every most every person on earth is strongly committed to one side or the other. That these kind of political partisan, I should say, part partisan battles represent most people. Um, I don't know. Like I, I don't have it. Well, there was a study done. Oh, I forgot the name of it. That was like something about we are more alike than we are different, or something like that. And it it did. Oh, I wish I could look that up. If I uh, maybe I'll post something in in, in the show notes. Um, I forgot the name of it, but just anecdotal. So here's here's an anecdotal example of how of why I question whether these kind of strong partisan debates are representative of people. I mean, it's 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 basically I'm, I'm trying to agree with your point that the majority might be weary and just kind of more of an eye roll now. Like, really, we're just going to keep fighting. Do you remember right after the uh, the mask mandate was rescinded for flights? That was a big deal. Do you remember that? No yeah, that not- wasn't long ago, was it? No, I was like, I want to say six weeks, two months. I um, I flew. Uh, I had a, a long kind of trip where I was in several different cities. I want to say four days after that was rescinded. Now, because masks have been so politicized, right? I mean, you know who somebody voted for, whether they're wearing a mask or not. Like, even today, it's, it feels kind of like that. But especially, you know, six months ago, you know who somebody voted for if they take ivermectin. <laughs> you know, just the stupidity of like how the, <laughs> it's just like really like. But yeah. but here's yeah. what's interesting is I would have expe- given how politicized masks are, I would have expected a huge percentage, maybe not half, maybe forty, maybe thirty percent, forty percent of people still wearing masks because that has become a sign of political allegiance. I want to say through major airports on several different flights, 5% maybe were wearing masks. And that's not, yeah. I'm not even trying to make a statement on one. I'm not, yeah. that could, 
you talk about masks yeah, and people. Just, yeah. It's just a statement of how it's it's diminished as a, a yes. cultural value, maybe. Yes. Um, you, you, if you listen to political rhetoric, you go on social mm-hmm. media, and you can easily see who somebody voted for, whether they're not wearing a mask, what, what they, their view on masks are. I just mm-hmm. wonder if the majority of normal people um, are that politicized. I don't know. Maybe I'd be too hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, please, please keep spreading that hope, man. Um, <laughs> you know, because here's the thing. Cynicism, negativity, uh, grumbling are contagious. Huh. And and so is hope and and faith and love. Uh, that You know, those things are contagious, too. And, you know, I, and I think we're, we're seeing something that C.S. Lewis said play out somewhat, where he says, hell begins with a grumbling mood. Huh. <laughs> and the wow. world has just had this collective grumbling mood. And it, it's been kind of a living hell for a lot of people, huh. you know, uh, of just I, I think people's social realities have become unmoored hmm. in this climate. And, yeah. and so, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a super fan for contagious faith, hope, and love, you know, moving forward. Cause I don't, I don't think contagious cynicism and, you know, negativity and grumbling has produced much good personally. Yeah. 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 Hey, uh, let's go back to your book. We won't, we, we started there and wandered off really quickly. Um, so I'm, I'm more, I'm interested in how God redeems, um, regret, hurt and fear. We've kind of been exploring and going down the rabbit hole of some of the causes of, um, the regret, hurt, and fear, especially the fear piece. But what's God's, what's your pastoral advice for people that do feel hyper anxious, worried about um, economic collapse, pandemics, um, political division? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, there's a lot that I can say on this and have been saying on this and, 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 you know, different conversations, but um, to, you know, to try to keep it short, Preston, I, I think I think seasons like this are a really good occasion for Christians, especially, to um, revisit where you know even the Bible that we say we believe came from and who gave it to us. Um, almost a hundred percent of the books of the Bible were written by somebody who was either in prison, uh, a slave. Um, you know, awaiting their execution, um, always um, facing the the fear of of death uh, and being ostracized in a in a hostile government climate, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon or mm-hmm. or Pharaoh's Egypt or or you know the you know Caesar's Rome, which is the backdrop of the entire New Testament. Mm-hmm. The Bible was given to us by people who sinned deeply and, and had much guilt and shame. You could look at King, King David. You could look at the ancestry of Christ with Rahab the prostitute. Uh, you know, you, you could look at, you know, you know or, 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 you know, the shame that Tamar, the sexual assault victim, carried. You know, all, all these are in the genealogy of Christ. You know, David had Solomon through the wife of Uriah, as it says yeah, in, right. in Matthew. <laughs> Big sinners, uh, great colossal sinners uh, who found hope in, in the grace and mercy of Christ. Big sufferers uh, as well, um, as I've already said, who who found hope in the presence, in the presence of Christ, and in the solidarity uh, that Christ offers as as the suffering servant. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, you know people who were subject to to big. 
um, you know, weighty realities of what awaited them in the future. Eleven of the twelve disciples died as martyrs. Um, you know, number twelve, the apostle John died, you know, in prison. You know, it, you know, Hebrews Hebrews eleven, the Faith Hall of Fame, talks about how none of the heroes of the faith saw what was promised to them in their lifetime, but they were looking ahead to a better country, right? Like take Isaiah, for example, right? We look back on Isaiah in the same way that we look back on Van Gogh. You know, Van Gogh didn't become famous until after he died. Mm -hmm. Um, And his best work, his best art came through deep uh, suffering and pain uh, and personal trauma. He went insane, Mm-hmm. And um, you know was was locked up uh, mm-hmm. in, in his insanity, and, and some of his best work came from from those seasons of his life, and and you know you, you just think about Isaiah, who you know we get all these wonderful, hopeful, you know beautifully poetic statements about Christ, you know the suffering servant, or you know the word of God won't return void, but will always accomplish the purpose for which He sends it out. But but this is all coming from a prophet who never, uh, you know, experienced a congregation that liked him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, never experienced um, listeners who received his words positively like we do. The guy was eventually put to death by being sawn in two because of his preaching. Uh, and And so, you know, you look at stories like that and you think, well, now, you know, look at Isaiah now. We do Handel's Messiah every year around the world, uh, around his prophecies, the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. Um, you know, he's got it great. Well, he didn't have it great, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And 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 so I think just looking at the big picture perspective that, that the redemption story, has, it's like the pattern of the universe, right? Like if you want to grow a fruit tree, you've got to kill a seed in order to do it. You, you got to take, you got to take a seed and bury it in the, put it in the darkness. So it cracks open and dies. Hmm. And, and out of that death, you get life, right? The Lord's supper every Sunday, it's, it's, it's wheat that has been cracked and killed and grapes that have been cracked and killed, hmm. uh, you know, in order to give us bread and wine, uh, to reassemble our lives. Right. And, and like, like, it's just, it's this, this, it's in metaphor and in reality, that God's power is made perfect through weakness, not through political power, not through getting our way, not through having all the money that, that we could ever dream of. Uh, you know, even though money's a morally neutral thing, it's you know, it's not bad to have money. It's just it's just dangerous to love it. Um, but you know, you look at the Ecclesiastes guy who was the you know arguably the one Bible writer who wasn't a sufferer, hmm. and he was probably the greatest sufferer. You know, he like he had all the sex money and power and, and, you know, fulfilled all his dreams. And the Thomas Merton thing happened to him. Right. I've I've been climbing the ladder of success all of my life only to get to the top and realize that it's been leaning against the wrong wall the whole time. Hmm. And so I I just I I think seasons like this are seasons of opportunity uh, that can become a seized opportunity to remember, wait a minute, this is where the magic of God happens is at the on the ground, you know, with, with Jacob wrestling with God, and then he gets up with the limp or the the bleeding woman on the ground grabbing the hem of Jesus's garment, and that's where she receives the power of God for healing, or the Apostle Paul on the ground begging that the, his thorn be removed, and and then he discovers that's where the power of God is found on the ground, mm. uh, and 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 
uh, you know, or, or I could go on and on and on, no, but, yeah, but we have no category for suffering in, in the American West, Western church. Or just, uh, or just being uncomfortable, right? Like I mean, our church members, air conditioning. You know, like like our American church members complain about air conditioning or they don't like the color of the carpet or they don't like that we sang in the key of 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 G instead of the key of C. And those are our issues. You know, meanwhile, there's more persecution uh, happening around the world against believers than any other time in history uh, in communities where Christianity is vibrant. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and so it's just a, it's a gut check, right? Yeah. Um, will we seize the opportunity to embrace a robust theology of suffering or will we waste the opportunity? Uh, cause we might not get a pandemic opportunity again. Hmm. And, you know, I don't mean to be flippant uh, no. about calling the pandemic an opportunity, but, 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 but hard time, you know, guilt, regret, fear, suffering, hurt, yeah are opportunities to lean in to the riches that Christ has for his people. Um, How, everything so, you're saying uh, is... Here ends my, my rant, <laughs> uh, my sermon. How do, how do you get through to people with that? Because what you just said in the last five minutes, no Christian or thoughtful <laughs> human would say, no. No, no, none of that's true. No, no, that doesn't, you know, yeah. it, it's so scriptural, at the very least, let alone reasonable. I, any wise philosopher, religious or not, would have said the same thing throughout history, the Stoics and others, and, you know, right. that, that simply endless indulgement of your desires and comfort is not living with the grain of the universe. Um, mm -hmm. It's definitely not the Christian way, but it's not even the healthy human way. How do you we how do you get that message through to people? Um, it's not like you said. It's not you know to pursue a successful business is not bad. To enjoy air conditioning is not bad. To enjoy a good uh, fine wine and a good meal is not bad. Like these are good things. Um, but when some of those when you go without, if your life crumbles or you can't function or you don't see the value in going without. That that the average person will see like that is not healthy to be so addicted to comfort that you just kind of lose it or or you're so focused on these minutia things like the air conditioning is you know two degrees too cold two degrees too hot and I, I lose my mind or whatever. How do you get through to people with that? I think the fishers of men and sower of seeds metaphors that Jesus taught are the way to go and the way to think uh, for those of us who are trying to participate in, in God's activity of moving the needle forward in the direction of, of truth, beauty, redemption, or, or what the, the Anglicans and Episcopalian brothers and sisters call his saving health, you know, in the Book of Common Prayer. Fishing and sowing seed, most, most of the bait that you catch will either get stolen or not bitten and it'll just fall <laughs> off the hook. Yeah. But every now and then you're going to catch a fish. If, if you just keep casting it out, same thing with seeds, right? Like we, we reseed our yard every year and, and you know, we get, we get some, some new grass in there, but most of the seed doesn't take. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's the nature of sowing. And, and yeah, 
I, I think I think you know trying to put the gospel forward in ways that that God has led us to put the gospel forward in our different you know spheres. It works the same way, and we just have to be content, realizing that that like like when when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, there were a lot of people who believed, and there were even more people who wanted to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. <laughs> you know, imagine that, like wanting to kill the guy that Jesus just rose from the dead. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but yeah. it, you know, and and I don't I want to make a distinction here between struggling to embody that way of life where you embrace a good meal and a satisfying meal and also embrace hunger like like um embrace a good paycheck embrace going without money and having to eat beans and rice whatever which probably doesn't happen to hardly anybody listening to the show um but so so it's one thing to struggle with that like like for instance my um i I've, I've been on and off trying to do this intermittent fasting thing, you know, about this, where you go 16 hours without eating, you eat within an eight hour window. So basically if you stop eating at 8 PM, then you don't eat again until noon, like no calories, no cream in your coffee. It is, apparently it's good for you. It's so hard for me. I woke up this morning, 6 AM. I had um, a bite last night, I think at 9:30. So I'm like, Oh, 1.30, I have to stay awake for seven and a half. Is that eight and a half without food? I already, I'm already, I wake up hungry. Like I'm like, I want some cream in my coffee. I, I want some eggs, well seasoned. Maybe I'll make a soup around 11, you know. And even now, like it's, it's 10, you know, and I've got like a few more hours to go and it's hard. Like, so I'm not, I'm not at all saying like, yay, I hate comfort. No, I love, I mean, I love comfort. But I do right. recognize mentally that it's good for me. It's good for my it's it increases my human flourishing mm-hmm. when I go with desires unmet as part of the rhythm of life and celebrate the times when my desires are are met. But I you know what I'm saying? So so I, I first wanted to say it's hot. I don't like suffering. I don't like and I suffer, I don't even call it suffering. I, I don't like discomfort. Um, I don't yeah. like my well drying. <laughs> I like water. Right. Um, right. But, um, so it's like, you know, I, yeah. Do, do I sometimes hear a worship song or music and I'm like, ah, it's not my favorite. Ah, is that a key? Or why is that person? Like I have those same feelings. Yeah. But to be told, but I know it's raw. Like I know it's so bad that if I look at the carpet and say, send an email, like, <laughs> I go, we have this carpet. This is the worst thing ever. It's blue and I don't like blue. You're like, but there's people that yeah. do, I don't understand people that, that don't recognize that, that, that that's not a healthy way to live. Yeah. It's okay to have opinions sure. um, and it's in perspective. And it's even okay to uh, share opinions and perspectives. Right. Cause like, yeah. you know, the blue carpet thing, like God is a God of beauty. Sure. Um, aesthetics matter to God, like everything else does. And so it's, it's a legitimate bona fide conversation to have. Um, but the question is, you know, to what degree do we turn good things into ultimate things to the neglect of ultimate, of actual ultimate things, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, is, is, is not only my, I, is it not just, do my ideas support the love of God and love of neighbor? 
okay, let's just assume we all think our ideas support the love of God and love of neighbor. Does the way that I am bringing forth my ideas support the love of God and the love of neighbor and serve as a, an example or a picture of that? Um, kind of that's the next level question. Um, and maybe the, the final question is, um, you know, am I trying to promote a good thing as if it were the ultimate thing? Am, am, am I turning a non-essential into an essential? Am I, am I elevating an opinion to the level of, of the Apostles' Creed, um, yeah. you know, and uh, as if it were inerrant and infallible, um, as, as if my opinion were actually a fact of the universe. And that's where we've, you know, just got to do the logs and specs thing. We've got to constantly be in conversation with people who know us well to, you know, ask them, how, how are you experiencing me yeah. in this conversation? How do you perceive that others around us are experiencing me in this conversation? And, and, you know, to have those people in our lives that are both invited to speak in and willing to speak in. Um, and, yeah. and so, yeah, I guess I would just yeah. um, end with that. Well, Scott, it's been an hour. Uh, the book is Beautiful People Don't Just Happen, How God Redeems Regret, Hurt, and Fear in Making Us, uh, in the Making of Better Humans. Um, at, the, at this time of recording, it's not. it comes out next week, but by the time this comes out, it's, it'll already have been out. So I'll just speak in the past tense. Uh, go check out the book. If uh, <laughs> something we've said is of interest to you, Scott unpacks this a lot more in, um, in his book. What number of book is this, Scott? Is this four, five, six? Uh, this will be the sixth. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, Scott, love you, brother. Uh, keep doing it hey, to do down there. Person. It's glad to have a like-minded person down there in Tennessee. And uh, we'll have you on next year, probably. <laughs> or next time. <laughs> yeah, we'll make it two years, but let's try to connect between, uh, yes. between those times uh, in person if we can. For sure. For sure. All right, man. Take care. Thanks, Preston. See ya. Hey.